chapter eight of some american storytellers by frederick tabor cooper this librivox recording is in the public domain eight edith wharton in undertaking a critical estimate of any of our modern novelists there is usually a good deal to be learned from a study of their early work the volumes that stand as a record of their apprenticeship in the case of mrs wharton however we have to dispense with any such sidelight when her first collection of short stories appeared in eighteen ninety nine under the title of the greater inclination the most salient fact about them and the one which brought swift recognition was their mature power their finished art as it seemed to us then the clear-cut polished brilliance of those eight keen studies of human heart-pangs represented the full development of a talent of unusual magnitude now from the vantage point of a dozen years we can see that the author of the house of mirth and madame de trames was still far from having found the full measure of her strength that a plenitude of culture and social wisdom had veiled an unsure technique and that a normal sympathy for human weakness was either lacking or else deliberately masked under an assumption of amused irony it is possible to show with a fair degree of conclusiveness that in these respects mrs wharton's later work is bigger and stronger and more human yet the changes are of a subtle kind that would not strike the casual reader's naked eye and for that reason it is more helpful in considering her general characteristics as a story-teller and before taking up her separate volumes to ignore any division into periods and to treat of her style her methods her philosophy of life as though there were no essential difference between her first book and her last now the first thing that must strike a discriminating critic whether he makes her acquaintance through the medium of the muse's tragedy or the letters is that he has to do with an author of rare mental subtlety and unusual breadth of culture a worldly wise person with wide cosmopolite sympathies yet rather rigid prejudices of social caste one would guess with no further help than the light shed by her own writings that here was a mind that might be likened to a chamber of art treasures not overcrowded but sufficiently rich to offer a pleasing harmony of colour and form such at all events is the impression that one gathers from her stage setting she lingers over each interior its portieres and wallpapers its etchings and mezzotints its choice old furniture and fragile porcelain with the grudging reluctance of a bibliophile relinquishing a first edition or a priceless binding so far as the atmosphere of her stories goes there is everywhere a pervading sense of art and literature and culture a sense as it were of sunlight softly filtering through richly stained glass of life seen relentlessly within the limits of a definite angle mrs wharton's literary activity has resulted up to the present day in somewhat more than fifty short stories and novelettes and three novels and of these the great majority deal frankly with the literary and artistic circle one has only to run over in memory the separate stories to realize the truth of this there are for instance no less than a dozen in which the hero is by profession an author every reader recalls at once the muse's tragedy souls belated full circle expiation the legend the touchstone and there is no use in amplifying the list and next to authors her favorite heroes are artists as witness the portrait the recovery the rembrandt the moving finger the daunt diana the letters the verdict and the pot-boiler yes her angle of outlook upon the world is rather narrow but like the proverbial still waters within that angle her thought runs rather deep yet if mrs wharton shows a predilection for artistic and academic society she nevertheless has a far-reaching 
i was tempted to say an exaggerated instinct for social values in all the various settings of her stories whether in the self-satisfied provincialism of a new england college town or the full flood tide of new york life to-day or of lombardy a century ago she never for an instant allows you to lose sight of the fact that there exists a local social code more potent than any laws of medes and persians a fine stratified caste system too attenuated for any but the native born to grasp in all its details yet inflexible in matters of cause and effect her subtle sense of the far-reaching significance of some quite trivial perhaps unconscious infringement of these unwritten rules of conduct gives us the real key to a number of her strongest situations her understanding of human nature her relentless pursuit of a motive down to its ultimate analysis her deliberate stripping off of the very last veils of pretence showing us the sordidness and cowardice of human souls in all their nudity are unsurpassed by any other woman novelist now living she has a trick not merely of describing even her secondary characters so clearly that you feel you can see them both inside and out but she often flings out some single line of description which ever afterwards sticks to that particular character like a burr and is probably the first thing we think of each time that character reappears for instance in souls belated mrs tillotson senior dreaded ideas as much as a draught in her back in a coward mrs carstyle was one of the women who make refinement vulgar in the mission of jane mrs lethbury is described as a woman most of whose opinions were heirlooms she was proud of their age and saw no reason for discarding them while they were still serviceable and still again in the portrait vard the political boss is described to us as a man who had gulped his knowledge standing as he had snatched his food from lunch counters the wonder of it lay in his extraordinary power of assimilation and such examples could be multiplied indefinitely but this is merely a superficial aspect of mrs wharton's treatment of character and of life and to some extent the surface sparkle of her style is at times a blemish we find ourselves straying away from the central interest of the story in order to relish for a moment the sheer verbal cleverness of some casual epigram such as genius is of small use to a woman who does not know how to do her hair or to many women such a man would be as unpardonable as to have one's carriage seen at the door of a cheap dressmaker her whole attitude toward the personages of her stories is a direct application of la rochefoucauld's maxim that in the sorrows and misfortunes of our friends we find something that is not altogether displeasing and her stories allow her abundant opportunity to do this from first to last they deal with the victims of fate men and women who are caught in the meshes of circumstance and struggle with as hopeless impotence as so many fish in a dragnet mrs wharton may not be conscious of it but there is a great deal of predestination in the philosophy of her stories nearly all her heroes and heroines seem foreordained to failure of struggle in the sense in which drama is defined as a struggle a conflict of wills her books contain little or nothing her tragedies belong to one or the other of two classes or to a combination of the two on the one hand to the complications arising from not understanding from the impossibility of ever wholly getting inside another person's mind and on the other from the realization that one cannot escape from one's environment that one's whole family and race have for generations been relentlessly weaving a network of custom and precedent too strong for the individual to break 
as for the first of these tragic keynotes that of misunderstanding it is only necessary to glance through a few of the separate stories chosen almost at random to see how the word recurs over and over with or without variations like a light motif thus in the story entitled in trust halliden sums up the crucial point with the words i can't make her see that i'm differently situated in the last asset garnet lays his finger on the difficulty ah you don't know your daughter in the portrait mrs mellish says i wish you'd explain and lilo answers would there be any failures if one could explain them in souls belated lydia asks piteously you do understand don't you and the heroine of the muse's tragedy says pathetically i shall never be quite so lonely again now that someone knows that's the dreadful part of it said mrs westall in the reckoning the not understanding and even in the daunt diana where the idol of old humphrey meave's heart was not a woman but a statue the same light motif recurs in the concluding paragraph now at last we understand each other the other tragic motive that of the inexorable demands of social traditions the unwritten law of noblesse oblige we find forming the very warp and woof of all mrs wharton's bigger and more serious efforts in the house of mirth lily bart is tossed as helplessly as a cork in the whirls and eddies of the social stream tossed and buffeted and finally dragged under with her eyes wide open to her own helplessness in the valley of decision odo valseca and fulvia vivaldi sacrifice their happiness to the obligations of rank a prince's duty to his people and they do this not in the spirit of generous sacrifice but rather because they recognize the impossibility of doing anything else and so again in madame de trems even an american finds that all the vaunted freedom and independence of our republic avails nothing when confronted by the impalpable yet unyielding wall of french family tradition and prejudice so much for the general character of mrs wharton's situations and problems before turning to take a more specific glance at some of the separate stories it is well to get the following points clearly in mind regarding her technique of construction mrs wharton is one of those exceptional writers who do not greatly concern themselves with conventional rules of length and breadth economy of means is a principle which never binds her against her will her short stories frequently lengthen out into the structure and dimensions of a novelette her novelettes might so easily have been expanded into full-length novels she writes apparently to suit herself in whatever way the narrative comes most naturally to her a mot passant with a different ideal of story structure a more relentless self-discipline would have used a vigorous pruning-knife on almost any of her stories and gained it might be sharper effects but at the sacrifice of much delightful cleverness in some rare and subtle half-tones we must accept mrs wharton as she is recognizing frankly that she is one of those writers who must do the thing their own way if they are to do it at all but do not let us fall into the widespread error of assuming that because her stories are so remarkably good she necessarily has a flawless technique it would be impracticable as well as bewildering to attempt a detailed survey of all or even a majority of mrs wharton's stories we must necessarily make a slender choice touching only the higher places the first volume however the greater inclination needs closer attention for the purpose of pointing out some structural weaknesses the opening story the muse's tragedy 
deals with a young critic's interest in an older woman who in earlier years was the source of inspiration to a now deceased poet daniers the critic has learned to know mrs annerton first as the sylvia of vincent rendell's verse secondly through the gossip of a quite negligible woman mrs memorall thirdly by direct association with mrs annerton herself and lastly through her voluntary self-revelation when in one sentence she not only destroys daniers hopes but sweeps away the entire legend that had gathered around her it is because vincent rendell didn't love me that there is no hope for you now the central idea of this story is clear as crystal the tragedy of an unloved woman as seen through the eyes of another man two men and one woman and a single point of view that i think is the way mrs wharton would have written the story ten years later she would have done it more in the manner of the dilettante and by doing so have gained in power a journey mrs wharton's second story offers one of the strongest situations she ever used a woman bringing her invalid husband home to new york discovers in the morning shortly after leaving buffalo that he is lying dead in his berth to avoid being put off the train she all day long keeps up the pretence that he is too ill to be disturbed and breaks down under the strain only at the moment when the train glides into the grand central station now the greatness of a short story very largely depends upon the trick of choosing all details of structure with the idea of making each in turn add its share to the poignancy of the situation in the present case it seems axiomatic that the ultimate tragedy of the situation would depend upon the degree of affection that the wife felt for the dead man mrs wharton has chosen to tell us without reserve that the wife had ceased to care for him at all she is a frail woman physically unstrung a little frightened at her isolation and helplessness but that ultimate turn of the screw which comes of a great personal bereavement is missing and thirdly we come to that much-praised story the pelican the history of a woman who finding herself a widow with a small child and no property undertakes to support herself by lecturing in hotel parlours and before women's clubs she has a scant mentality but she makes a moderate success thanks to her upper lip her dimple and her greek thanks also to encyclopedias and an indulgent public that sympathises with her desire to educate her boy thirty years later she is still making the rounds of clubs and parlours for the purpose of raising money to educate the same boy now the crucial moment of the story comes when the boy a bearded man of thirty runs across her at a hotel discovers her subterfuge and demands an explanation all this is natural enough but the story is told in the first person by an old friend of the mother the son drags this old friend a stranger to him into his mother's presence and before him denounces her in terms that make one wince his whole manner is in bad taste perhaps mrs wharton meant him to be precisely that kind of a man but one doubts it at all events if she were writing that story to-day she would not have made him a man of quite that kind in this way we might take up those early stories one by one and show how they miss that fine perfection which mrs wharton began to show in crucial instances and which she shows so triumphantly in the descent of man it is hard in speaking of this third volume to discriminate in favour of any particular stories they are all so extremely good in the one that lends its title to the book we have the delighted irony of the struggle of old professor linyard between the hobby of his life on the one hand and the practical needs of daily sustenance on the other his heart is in the ethereal reactions of the infusoria and the unconscious cerebrations of the amoeba 
he has contempt for the world at large and writes what he thinks to be a biting satire on the modern popular thirst for books of pseudo-science but the public insists on taking his satiric volume the vital thing in earnest and on making a lion of him and when we take leave of the poor professor he is still planning for some time or other to go back to his serious work in life the amoeba but he has just signed a profitable contract for a sequel to the vital thing but unquestionably if we must discriminate we should do so in favour of the other two the story of a woman twice divorced and a third time wedded when waythorne married alice varick who had earlier been alice haskett and had brought with her haskett's little daughter he had fancied that a woman can shed her past like a man but in this he was to learn slowly that he was mistaken both of his predecessors are still alive both of them by a series of quite natural coincidences come into contact with himself and alice partly through business relations partly through social exigencies he rebels at first fiercely yet impotently then little by little accepts the inevitable and the curtain falls at last on the group of all three husbands past and present assembled in waythorne's sitting-room with alice placidly pouring tea for them there is not a single brush-stroke a single touch of colour in the whole picture that one could afford to alter it is a little masterpiece of its kind a deliciously ironical apotheosis of conventionalism these examples suffice to show the peculiar and inimitable quality of mrs wharton's gift for the short story when she is at her best the later stories differ often in their specific kind but scarcely any of them show a higher excellence than she had already attained in the descent of man it is a temptation to linger over such a delicate piece of artistry as the daunt diana in which an impecunious art collector after having long and hopelessly coveted a famous collection of rare antiques unexpectedly inherits a fortune buys the collection and then finds himself more unhappy than before because the collection is not really his it has not been gathered slowly and laboriously piece by piece it lacks that ultimate zest known to all true collectors that of pursuit and conquest he has no other remedy than to sell the collection at auction scatter it to the four corners of europe make the greater part of it practically inaccessible and then begin over again and squander the residue of his fortune in tracking down and buying back each one of the scattered treasures then again there is the letters a cruel little story of a man's easy-going selfishness and a woman's limitless tolerance when vincent deering is left a widower it seems to lizzie west who for years has been his little daughter's daily teacher and companion and for months has listened to his protestations of love that now after a decent interval they may marry deering is an artist and has made his home in france but now money complications summon him to america lizzie writes to him at first each day then once a week then at longer intervals but never a line comes back from him two years pass then one day she casually runs across him in a restaurant at heart she is unchanged but externally she is a different lizzie from the one he knew and forgot she has had a small fortune left her by a distant relative and prosperity has already set its mark upon her deering finds an ingenious and convincing explanation for his long silence an explanation that sets him in a noble light of self-sacrifice and swept along in the full tide of his eloquence lizzie forgives him and surrenders herself and her fortune it is not until some time after their marriage that she accidentally comes across in an old trunk all her former letters to him there is nothing strange in the mere fact of finding them 
it is the further detail that they are unopened that he never took the trouble to break their seals that brings enlightenment in her first passionate resentment she wants him to know that she has found him out wants to taunt him with his shallowness and his hypocrisy and then to leave him and some such ending would have been the blunder of a lesser talent mrs wharton was wiser than that she knew that for the lizzie wests of this world though an idol may be shattered there remains no resource but to go on worshipping the fragments she understood now he was not the hero of her dreams but he was the man she loved but to speak separately of each short story which for one reason or another stands out conspicuously beyond its neighbours in these several volumes would be to consume a disproportionate space and time upon only one side of mrs wharton's literary activities she began by proving her easy mastery over the short story form the interesting question remained whether she would be equally dexterous in her management of structure in the full-length novel for this reason it is worth while to examine at some length her first and most ambitious experiment in that direction the valley of decision she was fortunate at the outset in her choice of a subject peculiarly congenial to her temperament and acquired tastes her ambition was to sum up in a single volume italian life as a whole in the latter half of the eighteenth century that crucial settecento which has aptly been compared to the closing act of a tragedy it was a period of fallacious calm following the war of the austrian succession when beneath the surface all italy was seething with undercurrents of rebellion against the old established order of things when the little italian courts were still dozing in fancied security under the wing of bourbon and Habsburg suzerains when clergy and nobles still clung tenaciously to their class privileges and united in their efforts to repress the spread of learning when throngs of the ignorant and superstitious still crowded the high roads to the shrines of popular saints and a small but growing number of enlightened spirits met in secret conclave to discuss new and forbidden doctrines of philosophy and science it is a big subject and one full of epic values a subject which it is easy to imagine a balzac or a tolstoy treating in the bold sweeping impressionistic way that it demands but it was not easy to imagine in advance what an introspective writer such as mrs wharton had hitherto shown herself could make of such a theme that the resulting volume showed much comparative excellence came as a pleasant surprise she brought to her task no small amount of erudition she was saturated to her finger-tips with the historical facts of the period the motley and confusing tangle of petty dukedoms the warring claims of austria and of spain she gave us not merely a broad canvas but a moving panorama of the life of those restless times presenting with a certain dramatic power and a clear sense of relative values the discontent of the masses the petty intrigues of church and aristocracy the gilded uselessness of the typical fine lady with her cavaliere servente her pet monkey and her parrot the base ignorance of the peasantry the disorders and license of the bohemian world the strolling players and mountebanks in short all the various social strata and substrata of the period the book is less a novel than a sort of cultured seat of the epoch comprehensive thorough and rather ponderous it is not surprising to find now and again a certain avoidance of the concrete and the specific that is a defect commonly found in historical fiction of any period it is always safer to leave out a detail than to run the risk of putting one in that has not been amply verified yet curiously enough the valley of decision lacks much of the time another element which needed no verification 
namely the sunshine the blue sky the redolence of warmth and colour and surface gaiety which is the very essence of italy which makes itself felt in every page of stendhal's chartreuse de parme is woven into the woof and warp of romola and goes far towards redeeming the tawdry sensationalism of Ouida. there are times when one cannot help suspecting that mrs wharton has something in common with her hero who she tells us had lived through twelve italian summers without sense of the sun-steeped quality of an atmosphere that even in shade gives each object a golden salience he was conscious of it now only as it suggested fingering a missile stiff with gold leaf and edged with a swarming diversity of buds and insects her consciousness of nature is in this volume of much the same sort when she pauses to describe it she usually does so from a purely aesthetic point of view with an artist's professional enjoyment of some grouping of rocks or trees which would make an effective picture a scene which salvator might have painted or abandoned the road where the roadside started into detail like the foreground of some minute dutch painter and these descriptions are always of the briefest character it is only when she becomes interested in some matter of aesthetic or philosophic import that she permits her pen to run freely it is worth while to quote even at some length a characteristic passage of this latter type because such passages constitute a formidable proportion of the pages in this particular volume quote, in the semi-parisian capital where french architects designed the king's pleasure-houses and the nobility imported their boudoir panellings from paris and their damask hangings from lyons benedetto alfieri represented the old classic tradition the tradition of the grand manner which had held its own through all later variations of taste running parallel with the barocchismo of the seventeenth century and the effeminate caprices of the rococo period he had lived much in rome in the company of men like winkelmann and maffei in that society where the revival of classical research was being forwarded by the liberality of princes and cardinals and by the indefatigable zeal of the scholars in their pay from this centre of aesthetic reaction alfieri had returned to the gallicized turin with its preference for the graceful and ingenious rather than for the large the noble the restrained bringing to bear on the taste of his native city the influence of a view raised but perhaps narrowed by close study of the past the view of a generation of architects in whom archaeological curiosity had stifled the artistic instinct and who instead of assimilating the spirit of the past like their great predecessors were engrossed in a sterile restoration of the letter it requires a certain conscious effort to disinter from under all this superimposed erudition the essential central thread of the story the stage setting is an imaginary petty dukedom pianura in the north of italy owing allegiance to charles ferdinand on the one hand and attached by marriage to the house of Habsburg on the other the hero odo valseca is of the old order heir presumptive to the throne of pianura and kept from the succession only by an invalid cousin and the latter's sickly child in his character and temperament odo represents the conflicting tendencies of the times he is in sympathy with the new ideas of progress and liberty and has brief flashes of energy and enthusiasm but they soon burn themselves out for he is fundamentally lethargic and indifferent inheriting the fatal taint of his house the heroine fulvia vivaldi represents the new order she is the daughter of a professor of philosophy who has suffered exile for his temerity in teaching the forbidden learning under fulvia's influence odo becomes an eager disciple of the new philosophy 
and he is on the point of sacrificing his prospects and accompanying her to france when the death of his cousin unexpectedly makes him duke of pianura to the man and the girl his duty is plain this is so typical of mrs wharton the idea of rebellion against fate hardly seems to occur to them he must accept his burden and devote his life to securing for the people of pianura the liberty to which they are entitled as for fulvia she may either continue on her way alone to paris or she may remain at pianura under conditions which she will not accept Quote, the regent's mistress she said slowly the key to the treasury the back door to preferment the secret trafficker in titles and appointments that is what i should stand for and it is not to such services that you must even appear to owe your power i will not say that i have my own work to do for the dearest service i could perform would be to help you in yours but to do this i must stand aside to be near you i must go from you to love you i must give you up no one can say that this was not excellent reasoning but three years later fulvia changes her mind returns to pianura and accepts the very conditions which she previously so emphatically refused the result is an impression of inconsistency a feeling that the fulvia who went away and the fulvia who came back are two quite different persons apparently however her return was a structural necessity in order to pave the way for an effective and tragic ending fulvia spurs odo on to give the people a liberal constitution for which they are not yet ready and in the midst of the ensuing riots receives in her heart the shot intended for her lover such in brief is the substance of a story which the general tendency of criticism has been to overvalue the characters are clearly and conscientiously drawn the drama in which they play their part deals with vital questions of life and liberty and human happiness yet for the most part they leave us cold they fail to touch the keynote of responsive sympathy the explanation lies of course in the author's willingness to subordinate the human interest of her story the individual joys and sorrows of her characters to the exposition of her main theme the sociological conditions of eighteenth-century italy in other words at the time of writing the valley of decision she had not yet learned the trick of that delicate balance between the general and the specific theme which is the hallmark of the strongest and biggest type of fiction there remain three other volumes which demand specific notice the house of mirth madame de trems and the fruit of the tree two intermediate volumes the touchstone and sanctuary although highly characteristic are of no more significance in relation to mrs wharton's growth as an artist than the majority of her short stories perhaps rather less significant than just a few of them the fruit of the tree although the latest of her long novels may well be put out of the way first as representing the greatest gulf between purpose and accomplishment that any of her books afford the story opens with an accident in a woollen mill by which an employee loses an arm the affair would be hushed up but for the efforts of john amherst assistant foreman and justine brent hospital nurse both of whom lose their positions in consequence the mills are run in the interest of capitalists and in defiance of factory regulations they are owned by a young widow bessie westmore who has been content to shirk her responsibility and leave matters in the hands of her trustees john amherst marries the widow believing that he has convinced her of the justice of his plans to reform the mills and here begins a long slow struggle and an inevitable estrangement since bessie contrary to her husband's expectations cannot see why her money should be thrown away on club-rooms and gymnasiums for the workmen when she needs new gowns new carriages new automobiles 
estrangement begets defiance and bessie deliberately risks her life on a horse that amherst has forbidden her to ride the result is a disastrous fall and serious damage to the spine near the base of the brain her husband cannot reach her for weeks he is travelling in south america the doctors know that there is not one chance in a thousand for her recovery but there is a hope through the cruel skill of modern surgery of keeping her alive until amherst can arrive but this can be done only at the cost of unimaginable torture an augmenting anguish that rings from the sufferer a ceaseless hoarse inarticulate cry increasing in intensity with the slow passage of the days justine brent the trained nurse who has been a lifelong friend of bessie finds her patient's agony more than she can bear to witness and mercifully cuts it short with an extra hypodermic of morphine she believes in her conscience that she has done right and not a doubt assails her until in the course of years she herself becomes the wife of john amherst and he comes to know that in the eyes of the law she would be regarded as the murderess of his first wife the plot of this story in so far as it concerns the right of the medical profession to shorten suffering where a cure is hopeless is not a new theme it has been briefly but poignantly handled in a short story by mrs atherton it has been worked out at great length by edouard rod in la sacrifier mrs wharton has nothing new to add to this issue and by bringing in factory reform and labour questions she has simply obscured her main theme the house of mirth is a book of altogether different calibre a big vital masterly book of its type and one that utterly refuses to be forgotten like so many of mrs wharton's earlier and shorter stories it is a trenchant satire on the manners and customs of certain social strata in new york of to-day the pages are not overcrowded with figures yet these are so wisely chosen and so deftly sketched in as to give an impression of many-sided kaleidoscopic life the book however belongs primarily to the type of the one character story it is a history of just one woman lily bart through a few crucial years the remaining personages in the story whether few or many are mere background shadow shapes that come and go with no other effect than to make the central figure stand out in sharper relief lily bart at the opening of the story is in spite of her nine-and-twenty years still essentially a girl with a girl's unquenchable desire for a continuation of the ease and luxury pleasure and adulation that have hitherto been her birthright but her parents are dead her resources are almost exhausted and she has all the helplessness which characterizes those brought up in accordance with the sheltered life system when confronted with the elemental problem of self-support she has in fact only one obvious path open to her namely marriage she may marry for money and despise herself or she may marry for love and repent at leisure or else suffer the equally probable pain of seeing her husband do sufficient repenting for them both so she temporizes and meanwhile puts off the evil hour from week to week living at the expense of her friends in a round of visits playing recklessly at bridge and of course losing heavily and foolishly accepting a rather large loan from a married man under the thin pretence that he has been speculating for her and has sold out at a profit but these details merely skim the surface of a book which quite wonderfully and unsparingly probes into the deepest recesses of a woman's heart dragging to the surface much that she would have refused to reveal even to herself and back of this merciless analysis 
and perhaps even bigger than it is the sense of an inexorable logic of cause and effect which leads us by closely correlated steps from the moment when lily bart first breaks one of the unwritten laws of her social set by a brief visit to a man's bachelor apartments down to the hour when she renders her final account and the empty chloral bottle tells its story it is easy for those who echo the modern cry for a spiritual uplift in fiction to carp at the house of mirth but the fact remains that the name of lily bart will be handed down in the list of heroines with whom the well-read person is expected to be acquainted and now quite briefly let us look at madame de Treme, a slender unpretentious little volume which i believe none the less to represent mrs wharton's high-water mark of attainment almost flawless in structure and in content it is an extremely simple story john durham had in the old unrestricted new york days known fanny frisbee long and intimately but it never occurred to him to find her desirable until fifteen years later he met her once more in paris as madame de malerive separated but not yet divorced from her husband her estrangement from her husband was now a five years standing so john durham could see nothing premature or indelicate in urging his own claims and persuading her to seek her freedom through the courts but he was destined to learn that in france especially among the old families there is a hereditary code so powerful as to make appeal to the courts well-nigh hopeless durham cannot understand the law is the law it all seems so simple but fanny de malrive knows better she has a little son whom she has pledged to bring up as a frenchman he is only half hers even now and she must do nothing that will lessen her hold upon him nothing that her husband's mother and sister and uncle the abbe do not approve this sister madame de Treme, holds the key to the situation if durham can meet her and win from her a statement whether or not the family will oppose a suit for divorce he and fanny will know where they stand the main story of the book is the contest between durham and madame de Treme, the duel of verbal finesse that is like the crossing of fine flexible rapiers and lastly that wonderful final thrust through which madame de Treme, by the very act of granting what he asks effects his total overthrow and to her own surprise hurts herself almost as keenly as she hurts him the book represents a high development of all of mrs wharton's admitted qualities and beyond these it has a more perfect technique of form and a greater sense of real sympathy with the people of her creation than anything she has written before it or since End of chapter 8